we are continuing our discussion on the doctrine of Christ and the deity of Christ. I want to address a variety of issues in this session. One of the ideas that has become very popular in the recent years, especially by the publication of fictional books like the Da Vinci Code, and believe me, the Da Vinci Code has been translated into all the Muslim languages too, is the idea that the deity of Christ was a, was a doctrine that was imposed at the Council of Nicaea on Christians and the rest of the church. Or even some liberal scholars say, yeah, it took several centuries for these ideas to develop, and they were mainly the result of pagan influences on Christianity. In the previous session, we talked about the Bible verses that talk about the deity of Christ, the claims of Christ and his disciples. But I want to look at something, not, I don't want to just look at doctrines now, I want to look at the earliest practice of Christian worship. I referred to this verse in the Quran uh, in the last session. I want us to look at it now in this session. In Surah 61, verse 14, this is what the Quran says about the disciples of Jesus and the earliest Christians. Surah 61, verse 14. O ye who believe, be ye helpers of God, as said Jesus, the son of Mary, to the disciples. Who will be my helpers to the work of God? This is Jesus asking the disciples, the apostles, you know, who will be my helpers? The disciples said, we are God's helpers. Then a portion of the children of Israel believed and a portion disbelieved. But we gave power to those who believed against their enemies and they became the ones that prevailed. The Quran puts its stamp of approval on the disciples of Jesus the Quran has no indication or hint that the disciples of Jesus corrupted the message of Jesus. And then the Quran says those of the Jewish people who believed in Christ, God gave them victory and they were the ones who prevailed. And Yusuf Ali, in his commentary on this verse, makes these observations. He says, a portion of the children of Israel, the ones that really cared for the truth, believed in Jesus and followed his guidance. And then he says that... Those who followed Jesus permeated the Roman Empire, and Christianity became the predominant religion of the world. Now, we want to look at what earliest Christians did and said about Jesus. The deity of Christ was not just a doctrine. It was at the heart of the worship of the earliest Christian communities. There is a scholar who has... Uh, uh, published a number of very significant books in the field of the earliest Christian worship. Uh, I have only one of his books here with me. His name is Larry Hortado, and he's a professor of New Testament at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And the name of this little book is called At the Origins of Christian Worship. Uh, he has a, a, a more recent book and a, and a very uh, big uh, tome of a book called Lord Jesus Christ. And he has uh, a great insight uh, about, the point, about this point, that G Christians worship Jesus from the very beginning. Now, why is this significant? Other figures in history have been called gods. The significance of this worship is that these are a bunch of Jewish people. They are devout monotheists. 
and within their context of the belief in one God, they are also, also worshiping Jesus. These are not a bunch of pagans who have a lot of gods in their belief system. And another very incredible insight is this. This worship of Jesus started at the very beginning of Christian history. In any religion, after several centuries, doctrines get exaggerated. Even today, there are Muslims who almost worship Muhammad or worship Ali. They make exaggerated claims about Muhammad and Ali. In every religious tradition, things get exaggerated and blown out of proportion. But it's significant that in the Christian faith, they happened within such an incredibly short amount of time. These are not mythologies that develop over a long course of time. Let's look at a number of these practices that Hurtado points out. In Christian worship, we see that prayer involves the person of Jesus. They pray to Jesus or through Jesus to God the Father. The common way is to pray to God in the name of Jesus or through Jesus, but sometimes Jesus is prayed to directly. The second point is that the name of Jesus is being invoked or confessed. Christians didn't gather together to remember a good prophet who had taught them some things. They gather because they believe Jesus is present and they pray to him and they invoke his name and confess him as Lord. I don't have the time to go into the details of the verses that Hurtado uh, points out, but there is one verse I want you to look at. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of those precious gems. It's like an archaeological discovery in a text. Now, in English translations, a lot of times it says, Come, O Lord. But in the original Greek, the word that Paul uses is this, Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. He is writing a letter in the Greek language to people living in Corinth far away from Jewish people in Jerusalem, and he uses the language of Jesus and earliest Jews, Aramaic. Now, you might say, Sasan, tell me, why is this so important? Because critical scholars say Jesus became God or Lord in many, many decades or centuries after the influence of pagans on Christian movements. But this Aramaic term that Paul assumes his readers know what it means shows that the earliest Jewish believers in Jesus called him Lord and they are praying to him and invoking his name. When we talk about the resurrection of Christ, our earliest documents that talk about the resurrection is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul, Paul is writing that letter, all scholars agree, in the early 50s, which some scholars say what Paul received was only like two or three years after the crucifixion. Paul received the message of Jesus' appearances when he met with the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. But even for the sake of the argument, let's say there's a 25-year gap between the resurrection and the earliest accounts of the resurrection. I mean, uh, you might not know this, but most scholars believe that 
First Corinthians was written before any of our four Gospels in the Bible, so that's the earliest account. The earliest document that tells us about the life of Prophet Muhammad, as you were told in previous courses, is at least a 150-year gap. A 150-year gap between Muhammad and the earliest Islamic documents that tell us about him. A 25-year gap in the New Testament testifying to the resurrection of Christ. 25 years is not enough time for mythology to develop. And in 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul says, Maranatha, 25 years is not enough for a Jewish prophet to become a god. Mythologies, exaggerations don't happen at that rate. So we see this group of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians at the earliest time are, na- are invoking the name of Christ as Lord. The practice of baptism is the third point, that Christians are baptizing people in the name of Jesus. No Jewish community baptize anybody in the name of a person. The fourth point Hortado points out is the Lord's Supper. Paul refers to the cup of the Lord and the table of the Lord. Jesus is alive and he's the Lord of the table in Christian worship. I love the fifth point. We're talking about points of Christian practice in earliest Christian worship. The fifth point is singing hymns to Christ. They are singing to Christ. No Jewish group was singing songs to Moses. They are worshiping this person at the earliest time in Christian history. And there are a number of passages in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you references for them, but scholars believe these are hymns. Now, sometimes in your translation, you might not realize these are hymns, but when you look at the Greek carefully, they have the structure of hymns that Christians were using to worship Christ. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11. And to me, that's one of the most important passages about the deity of Christ that I share with Muslims. That Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and died on the cross. From the earliest times, we Christians have been affirming this truth, that God came down to us. We didn't elevate a prophet, a human being, to the level of God. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. That's another hymn in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Ephesians 5, verse 14. And 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. These are hymns that Christians are worshiping Jesus with. And then we see the sixth point, the element of prophecy. People in the church are prophesying, and they said, Jesus has told us this, prophesying in the name of Jesus. And there are a number of passages in the New Testament that uh, say that it's Jesus who has given this message. All of this to say, Jesus, from the earliest time in Christian history, was worshipped as God and Lord. He was never viewed as just a prophet who gave good teachings, and then it was through centuries of exaggeration that he became God. And yet Christians were so careful to affirm the deity of Christ in the context of a belief in one God. This is an analogy I use with Muslims very often. Uh, or actually, before I use that analogy, let me, let me make another comment here. When we talk about the, the, our belief that Jesus is God, we need to be 
uh, we need to explain this to Muslims uh, more adequately. In fact, we see that the New Testament does not refer to Jesus as God very often. They refer to Jesus as the Son of God or various other titles and descriptions that we talked about in the last session. There are a few references to Jesus as being Theos or God. But they are not very common because the New Testament authors wanted, did not want to confuse the readers. When we say Jesus is God, we are actually using a theological shorthand. And this is very careful. You need to note this. When we say Jesus is God, what we are affirming is to say Jesus is God in essence. We are not talking about numerical identity. We are talking about essential identity. Christians don't believe that you can take the word Jesus out of the verses of the Bible and instead put the word God in it. Jesus is God in essence, but he is not the same person as the Father. We see Jesus is praying to the Father. Jesus says, the Father has sent me. So Jesus is not talking to himself when he's praying. And so we need to be careful about how we explain the deity of Christ to our Muslim friends and even to ourselves. I will, moment, in, in, a, in a few minutes, I will talk about the theological development of this doctrine. But uh, let me tell you the, the analogy I use that has been very helpful for many Muslims. Muslims say, how can Jesus be God? How does that make any sense? I say, imagine, and uh, first of all, no human analogy adequately and fully relates the truth of God. We have to confess that, and we've talked about this earlier. Nevertheless, analogies can tell us some very deep truths about God. So no analogy is perfect, but this is what I have found to be very helpful in communicating to Muslims. I say, imagine an ocean. Imagine uh, and, 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 and let's suppose that that ocean stands for God. None of us can encounter or experience the ocean. We are finite, limited human beings. We can only experience a finite part of the ocean, but we can't experience the whole ocean. Now, suppose out of this ocean, out of, out, out of the waters, someone brings up a, a glass of water, and you're told... This water is the water of the ocean. It doesn't mean that the whole ocean has been condensed in this glass of water. It doesn't mean the whole ocean has disappeared and now it's just this water. What it means is that the chemical, the, the, the chemical makeup of the water is the same as the chemical makeup of the ocean. Every characteristic of this water is the characteristic of the water of the ocean, and everything that, has it, that is in the ocean is in this glass of water. He who tastes and drinks from this water has tasted and drunk the ocean. In a similar way, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, in the bodily form of Christ, all the fullness of deity resides. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you drink from this glass of water, you've tasted 
the water of the ocean. So that's what we Christians are trying to affirm when we say Jesus is God. Jesus is God in essence. The first disciples realized that in looking at Jesus, they are looking at the very heart of God. The forgiveness of Jesus is the forgiveness of God. The teaching of Jesus is the teaching of God. The authority of Jesus is the authority of God. The judgment of Jesus is the judgment of God. Not just a prophet. God is revealing himself to the people. You need to make yourself familiar with classical Christian creeds. Creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. In 325 AD, the church was fighting over the deity of Christ. And this is what the church, how the church formulated its faith based on the scriptures. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then talks about how he provided salvation for us. And then it goes on, and the third part says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. There were many controversies about the person of Christ. But the interesting thing is, the very earliest controversies in the church were not about whether Jesus is God or not. It's about whether he was a real man or not. The heresy that the church had to fight with in the beginning was the heresy of docetism. It was the belief that Jesus only appeared to be man, but he really just was God. So the church had to fight for the, for the belief and the fact that Jesus was truly a human being, a true man. And then later, there were other groups who challenged the div- divine nature of Christ, like the Ebionites or the Arians, that Jesus was the first creature of God, but he wasn't fully God. So the church had to struggle with the belief that we believe in Christ, who is true man and true God. And then later, in the 3rd century, uh, there were other controversies. And at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the church had to formulate its belief in light of new challenges. Christians were trying to figure out, okay, Jesus is fully man, Jesus is fully God, but then how do these two natures relate to each other in the person of Christ? And so, the summary of the confession of the church made this claim. This is very important for you to pay attention because if we understand correct Christian doctrine, it answers almost all the questions Muslims ask about the Bible and references to Christ. References to Christ that seem like he's saying he's not God. So if you're clear in your mind, you can understand the Bible better and answer the objections more effectively. The church, the orthodox view of the church said... That in Jesus, we have true man and true God in one person with two natures. The two natures are not mixed or combined together, and they are not separated from each other. Now, you might say, Sasan, 
what do these ancient doctrines have to say to me today? How are they relevant? The church struggled with these questions too. These doctrines are relevant because they define salvation. The belief was that Jesus saved us on the cross. Only God can save us. Only God can forgive. So if Jesus saved us, he had to be God. And only man can die. So if he really, really died, he had to be man. So Jesus, if he is reconciling God and man together, he has to have one, God, one hand in the hand of God and one hand in the hand of human nature that he can reconcile God and man. If his divine and human nature were combined and confused together, then that's just a new, new uh, creature. That becomes a new thing that is neither fully God nor fully man, but a third new thing. That's why these two natures are not confused into one. And he has to be one person because if he is two persons, again, we cannot have one mediator between God and man. And the reality is that Jesus died on the cross as the God-man. As God, he could save us. As man, he could die on our behalf. So that's why these doctrines are important. These are not just some obscure controversies of the past. These are uh, careful ways to talk about how we can be saved by Christ. So we say Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He has the same essence as the Father. Because if he didn't have the same essence as the Father, who could not be God. And that was the big word that was debated at the Council of Nicaea. The Greek word homoousios, of the same substance or same essence. So... The Son of God, who shares the same nature with the Father, 2,000 years ago, in the womb of Mary, joined himself to human nature. Jesus Christ was born. The second person of the Trinity takes on himself the human nature. So when we want to talk accurately in theological terms, we have to be careful how we use these words. When the creed says Jesus is begotten of the Father, it's trying to emphasize this point that Jesus is from God, the Word of God, the nature of God, the essence of God. He is not the first creation of God. He is the firstborn of God. These are human terms we are trying to use to highlight this spiritual truth. So the Father didn't take on the human nature. The Spirit didn't take on human nature. The Father and the Spirit did not die on the cross. The Son, with the human nature, God the Son, in human nature, died for our salvation on the cross. Now this answers, I mean, this correct understanding answers many of the difficult questions of the Bible. Jesus says, the same Jesus in the same gospel who says that the Father and I are one, the same Jesus who, who says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, he says, the Father is greater than I. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 28. In what sense is the Father greater than Jesus? Or in what sense Jesus says, the Father has sent me? 
he is obedient to the will of the Father. Not in the sense that Jesus is inferior to God, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Not in, not in the sense that God the Son is inferior to the Father, but in the sense that when Jesus was incarnated as the God-man, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. And that's why I think Philippians chapter 2 is very key in our understanding of this, where it says he was equal with God, but he emptied himself and took the form of a man. So the Son submits himself to the Father. He's of the same essence, but his position is one of submission for the sake of his mission. When the Bible says he was begotten, as I said already, it doesn't mean he was created, but that he comes from God. It means somebody who is absolutely unique. C.S. Lewis has an interesting comment on this. He says, we don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. He says, to beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. So that's why Jesus is the begotten of God, or as Paul says, the firstborn over creation, not the first made in creation. Because Colossians 1.15 talks about that. And many cultists and many Muslims say, see, it says, this says that Jesus is not God, Jesus is the firstborn himself. But no, it's, uh, Paul is using a term that's talking about the Jewish idea of the firstborn being first in rank. Jesus is superior over all creation. That's what Colossians is talking about, not that he's the first created being. Jesus had limited knowledge about the end times. Mark 13, verse 32 talks about that, that no one knows the hour, not even the Son, but the Father alone. It is a difficult verse, but this is how we understand this verse. In the act of emptying himself, as Philippians 2 talks about, Jesus is fully God, fully man, but not everything in the mind of his divine nature is being communicated to his human mind. As his divine nature is omniscient, but in his, in his human mind, he has to grow in wisdom, as Luke tells us. Jesus was a real human, and he had to grow in knowledge and stature. So the, his divine nature did not communicate everything to his human nature and human mind. Another popular passage Muslims like to point to is Mark chapter 10. A man approaches Jesus and tells him, good teacher, and Jesus stops him. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Muslims say, see, Jesus is denying that he's God. But something is more profound. Something more profound is happening in this text. Jesus says to the young man, Jesus wants to test the young man's understanding of what he means by good. Jesus never denies that he is good. He tells his challengers, who can find a sin in me? Jesus is telling this young man, you call me good, but do you know what that means? Only God is good, and if you believe that I am good too, you must know then who I am. And tells the young man, come and follow me, and the young man does not. This is something I point to Muslims uh, uh, quite often. Pay attention, 
the relationship between the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus is not like the relationship between Superman and Clark Kent. Superman was Superman, but he pretended to be a human being. He wore glasses to pretend that he can't see very well. Probably if you punched him, he would say, ouch, but he really wasn't man. He was Superman pretending to be a human being. Jesus wasn't pretending to be a man. He really died and felt the pain of our humanity. He asked questions. He grew in wisdom. He was hungry. He was tired. He had to sleep. Because in Christ, we have fully God, fully man, joined in one person with two natures. This is not a logical contradiction. It is beyond our, our human experience. How can a person be fully God and fully man? But we violate no laws of logic. I want to end this session with a quotation from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is probably one of the, the sharpest thinkers in the church today, and he's the bishop of the church in Durham in England. N.T. Wright says, When people ask the question, Is Jesus God? They tend to assume that we know who God is. The question means, Can you fit Jesus into your God picture? Well, the best Christian answer has always been, we don't know off the top of our heads exactly who God is, but we can discover him by looking at Jesus. You could say that at the heart of the Christian faith is the view, not that Jesus is more or less like God, or that he was part of God, but that the being we refer to as God was and is fully present and fully discoverable in and as Jesus of Nazareth. It's not like we already have some ideas about God and then see if Jesus fits that idea or not. Jesus confronts us with God. And he, radical, he radically transforms many of our misconceptions or ideas about God. It's through Jesus that we come to know who God is in the first place. He who has seen me has seen the Father. We have come to the end of our discussion on the deity of Christ. In the next session, we will continue the, uh, responding to the Islamic challenge of the corruption of Christian scriptures. Thank you.